It's October 18, 1915. Ernest Shackleton stands on the deck of the Endurance, watching pack ice bump into the ship's sides. He doesn't like the look of it. It's like the ice is testing the ship, seeing if it can find a hole in the armor. They've been stuck here for nine months, and lately he's been worried about the new changes in the ice, ever since the first jolt in the night back in August. It felt like a battering ram had slammed into the ship. Behind it in the distant sound of thunder, like a warning from the skies. It woke his men who sat up in their bunks, waiting for something terrible to happen. And then it was gone. By September, it came back again. A stealth attack in the night. First, there was a shuddering blow to the stern. Then, creaks and groans from the ship. It went on for hours. It left the men unsettled. But now it's October and the weather is warming. The sun is back after months of endless nights. And for the first time since the ship has been trapped in the ice, it's floating free in a small pool of water. If it continues like this, they could sail out in the next couple weeks. Maybe. He turns to his second in command. What do you think, Frank? Frank Wilde was with him on both attempts to the South Pole. He's level-headed and practical, a good balance to Shackleton's optimistic side. I don't like the look of the pack. Shackleton peers over the side of the ship. Wilde is right. The ice is closing in again. Suddenly, he feels the ship move, as if something is trying to push it over. He watches the deck slip out from under his feet. And then, all hell breaks loose. Wood, rope, sledges, kennels start to tumble down the sides. Men clatter up the stairs, grabbing at handholds to steady themselves as boxes fall on their heads. The dogs cry and howl. From below, Shackleton hears the clatter of pots dropping from their shelves. And then the cook's voice. Fire! There's a fire in the kitchen! Another man yells out in panic. The ice! It's rolling us over! We must be at 30 degrees! But then, slowly, the ship grinds to a stop. She's found a hold. For now. Shackleton barks out orders. Lash down whatever is loose. Grab the ropes and make sure the fire's out in the kitchen. For three hours, the men tie down everything that can move while the ship holds steady. And then at 8 p.m., the ice flows draw apart and release the endurance from its death grip. The ship rights itself again, bobbing in a small patch of water. Shackleton marvels at the strength of the endurance. The flow must weigh a million tons or more the only thing saving them are small cracks in the ice that let off some of the pressure. For five days, the ship remains in an uneasy truce with the ice. The air is quiet. There's not even a wind. But then, on October 24th, the ice stages another attack. It makes everything that came before seem like a child's wrestling match. There's nothing like this pressure. One shockwave follows another. Something colossal is happening. The ship quivers and groans as the ice closes in, jostling and pushing the ship until it's pinned. Another mass drags across her stern. 
Shackleton hears a grinding sound, and finally, the sound he's dreaded since this all began. Rushing water. The ship has been breached. The ice has won. We're sponsored by Nordic Naturals, the number one selling fish oil brand in the U.S. Did you know that more than 80% of Americans don't get enough omega-3 fats in their diet? But with Nordic Naturals, that won't be you. Nordic Naturals Ultimate Omega is a doctor-recommended fish oil formula for heart health, brain function, immune support, and more. You get all the benefits of fish oil with no fishy burps or aftertaste. I've been using their Ultimate Omega 2X for years and just started trying their men's one daily vitamin. Still to this day, Nordic Naturals is the only supplement I go to and I often travel with the bottles. Shop today at Nordic.com and use the promo code ATO for 20% off. That's Nordic.com, promo code ATO for 20% off. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. From Wondery, I'm Cassie DePeckle, and this is Against the Odds. In our last episode, Sir Ernest Shackleton put together a crew of 28 men to sail from England to Antarctica. Their goal? To be the first men to cross the entirety of the frozen continent. But before they could set foot on shore, their ship was hemmed in on all sides by pack ice, trapping them in the middle of the sea. Now the ice has attacked, and their lives and their mission are at stake. Meanwhile, almost a hundred years later, three descendants of Shackleton's crew set off to recreate the Great Explorer's 1908 trek to the South Pole. The only problem? They're unprepared for the challenges that Shackleton's Antarctica will throw them. This is episode two, Patience. Henry Worsley tucks his notebook into his backpack and gazes out the window of the Twin Otter airplane. That notebook contains years of planning and calculating, but now they're here. In just a few minutes, they'll land on Cape Royds, the point where Shackleton and his crew started their Nimrod expedition almost exactly 100 years ago. Shackleton never reached the South Pole on that trip, and that's why Henry and his team are there. His teammates, Will Gow and Henry Adams, are both descendants of the Nimrod crew. And together, they're going to honor Shackleton's legacy and complete the journey Shackleton began. He nudges the seats in front of him, where Gow and Adams are asleep. Hey guys, take a look at that view! Out the window on the horizon below is Mount Erebus, a volcano that Shackleton's crew climbed before anyone else in the world. Stretching in front is a huge plain of ice and snow, crisscrossed by massive dark gashes. 
These are deep, sheer-faced crevasses splitting open the ice. Gotta say, guys, I'm in no rush to cross those things. But they all know they will be impossible to avoid. The danger of what they're about to do hits them. They're all quiet for a moment. But then, the plane dips down over the coastline, and the feeling is gone. Henry gazes out at the seals sunbathing on blocks of ice and the vast expanses of white snow. It's just what he pictured. It looks like another world. And then he sees Shackleton's hut. It's so small, Henry thinks. How did Shackleton and his men live here for an entire winter? It's the very spot where they started their journey toward the South Pole. It's where Henry's team will start too. Henry pulls out the compass Shackleton's granddaughter gave him three weeks before he left. He still can't believe Shackleton once held this in his hand. He sets it next to the detailed itinerary he's put together for this trip. The goal is to make it to the southernmost point that Shackleton reached on January 9th, exactly 100 years to date. To do that, each three of the team members will need to drag a sled with 300 pounds of food and equipment over 800 miles of pure ice. They'll cover dangerous plateaus, climb an iceberg, and battle some of the harshest weather any human has ever encountered. Once they make it to the spot where Shackleton turned back, they'll be joined by five other people, including two other descendants of Shackleton's crew. Together, they will make the final trek to the South Pole, finishing what Shackleton and his crew had started. But they're already late. They were stuck in Chile for almost two weeks. Plane troubles. Then another delay at the logistics and expeditions base. If they're going to hit their target dates, they'll need to move faster, push harder. So they're hoping for perfect weather. Welcome to Cape Royds, gentlemen. When Henry exits the plane, the frigid air takes his breath away. He ducks his head and breathes deep. The icy snow shimmers against the horizon. It's brighter than he expected. Will comes up from behind him, grinning away. Pretty cool, isn't it? Henry nods, but he also knows beauty can be deceiving. Antarctica may be stunning, but it's dangerous, too. As Henry looks out, he just hopes he's up to the challenge. Chippy McNish wades through the water in the bowels of the Endurance. He knew that the ice was bad, but he can't believe the ship's been hit. Water is pouring in. Chippy is a master carpenter. If something needs fixing, he does it, but there's no fixing this. He rushes back to the main cabin to find Shackleton. Sir, it's no use. It's gushing. I checked the hand pumps too. They're frozen shut. Shackleton nods. Okay, we need to get it contained. Seal off the back of the ship. We have to stop it from coming in. Chippy hurries away. Shackleton watches him go and then begins barking orders to the rest of the men. Everything boils down to three main tasks. The enclosure, the pumps, and pushing back the ice. 
a group of men rush overboard and try to hack away at the pack to relieve the pressure on the ship. But every time they dig a trench, it fills up with more ice. The steam pump can't cope, so the men are having to hand pump as well. They work through the night in shifts, but after 12 hours, they're exhausted. Shackleton orders them to rest in shifts. We can't let her sink. As each hour passes, the men are weaker, more tired, but none of them complain. They love the ship too. They run from the pumps below to the ice outside, but still the ice keeps coming. At 10 p.m., it attacks from the side. The sound of timbers breaking stopped the men in their tracks. At midnight, it closes in and starts to squeeze. Decks buckle and beams crack. But still, the men keep trying, hoping to save her. But Shackleton knows they've done everything they can. At 5 p.m., he calls Frank Worsley to the upper deck. I'm sorry, Skipper, but we're going to have to abandon the ship. Please tell the men. As Worsley heads down below, he takes one last look at Shackleton, who is shadowed in the icy white drift. He looks like a mariner lost at sea. It's early morning on November 14th, 2008. Henry tries to stay quiet as he slides out of his sleeping bag, pulls on his boots and leaves the tent. Will and Adams are sleeping and he doesn't want to wake them up. But Henry hasn't been able to sleep. Too many nerves. In a few hours, the three men will begin the most challenging trip any of them have ever made. The brisk air takes his breath away. It must be 10 below zero. They warm up once they get going, but they'll need to manage their body temperature carefully get too hot and they'll have to stop and use precious fuel to make water to rehydrate. Too cold and they risk frostbite. He's wearing layers, easy to take off and put on. He's tried to plan for every situation. They have a GPS, satellite phones, even air support. They have far more than Ernest Shackleton could have dreamed of when he embarked on the same journey a hundred years back. So why does Henry feel so damn nervous? Probably because this is the Antarctic. If anything can go wrong, it will. What if someone gets injured or he can't physically do it? He's 48 years old, older than Shackleton was. Henry's thoughts are broken by Will. Morning, General. Morning, Will. Let's pack up. We're already behind. The three men fasten their skis and strap on the harnesses attached to their sleds. One by one, they press down on their ski sticks and slide off. Henry leans into the rhythm. His ears fill with the soothing sound of the skis over ice. In the silence of the continent, he's surprised how loud his breath sounds. He moves to the rhythm. He and his skis are one. Breathe in. Breathe out, pull. On the surface, everything is fine. But the bottom line is that Henry's afraid of failure. They set a hugely ambitious goal. Now, he wants to live up to his hero. Make him proud. 
Ernest Shackleton stands on the ice, watching his ship sink 200 yards away. It's been three days since they were forced to abandon the Endurance. He can't believe this is the same boat he took out to sea from London on the Great Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Her framework is torn and twisted, and the ice is slowly swallowing her. She was a good ship, the best he's ever had, but he has to look forward. The new plan is to march toward Powlett Island, 346 miles to the northwest. Under normal conditions, the crew might be able to do it easily, but it's not just the men. They need to drag two of the boats with them in case the ice melts. A cutter and a larger whaling boat. Each weighs 2,000 pounds on top of the sledges. Then there are all their supplies. Those will need to go on top of another heavy sledge. Shackleton confers with Worsley and Wilde. They agree, every man needs to pare down to only the essentials. It's not a conversation Shackleton relishes having with his crew. Their personal items are their connection to home. If he's going to ask them to sacrifice, he will need to sacrifice too. When he gathers the men together, he's holding a Bible in one hand. Men, as you know, we leave tomorrow. We have a long trip ahead. Several of them nod. After nine months of waiting and guessing what might happen, it feels good to have a plan, no matter how hard it will be. Shackleton continues. We'll need to pack light, only the essentials. The clothes on your back, socks, boots, and a sleeping bag. Everything else we need to leave behind. We need to be ruthless, no matter how valuable. I'll go first. He reaches a hand into his jacket and pulls out a gold cigarette case and throws it into the snow. Then he opens the Bible, a gift from Queen Alexandra. She even wrote an inscription to him inside. He tears out the page along with two other passages. He reads one aloud. Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Then he tosses the book next to the cigarette case and walks away. Throughout the day, the men drop their own personal items, tools, telescopes, books, stationery, pictures. Shackleton is moved. The next morning is gray and overcast a balmy 15 degrees, which softens the ice. It's not ideal, but nothing has been ideal since they began the trip. At 2 p.m., Shackleton and a small group go ahead with axes and shovels to carve a clear path, but the going is tough. The ice has formed ridges and valleys, which means they have to build ramps for the sledges and boats. But their job is easier than that of the men dragging the boats and supplies. The sledges sink into the snow and the men have to pull and push them out. After three hours, they've gone only one mile. The next day progresses even slower. They go less than a mile in four hours. Finally, Shackleton orders the party to stop on a flat patch. This is madness. They're going to have to stay here. He makes his way back to the last sledge and calls his men together. He chooses his words carefully. He doesn't want to dash their hopes. Up ahead, 
The going looks worse. We're gonna need to stay here for a while. This ice floe is the best place to camp. It's at least six feet thick. With any luck, the wind will carry us north, closer to land. Some of the men look dejected. Others cross their arms. But there's no time to wallow. It doesn't do any good. They need to refocus. We'll make trips back to the ship and bring back as many rations as we can. Tonight, we'll feast. At last, he sees a few smiles. As a group heads out, Shackleton gets busy helping unpack the tents. A busy mind has no time to worry about what could go wrong, like how long the food will last, or if the men will turn on each other, or if the ice flows will crack under their feet and send them into a watery grave. Right now, all Shackleton knows is that he needs to keep his men together. He prays for the wind. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle's exterior and interior has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, letting you go further and do more. Plus, their durability has been tested to the extreme, and their impressive cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and their award-winning infotainment system help keep you connected. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. We get support from Indeed. Hiring? Well, with Indeed, your search is over. Indeed leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day to help you match with the perfect candidate. Plus, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and an extended reach through Glassdoor, you'll get unparalleled access to job seekers. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. They help you hire better. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash the odds. Just go to Indeed.com slash the odds right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash the odds. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's 6 a.m. November 21st. Frank Worsley is up early. He's the captain of the Endurance Expedition, and he likes to take a walk through the camp before anyone is up. They've been on this ice floe for nearly a month, waiting for the wind to blow them closer to land. But so far, they've gone maybe 80 miles. The flow is 10 feet thick and a mile wide, large by any standards, unless you're trapped on it with 27 other men. But he's surprised how quickly it's come to feel like home. They've even given it a name, Ocean Camp. The only thing gnawing at him is the hunger in his belly. When he gets back to his tent, he writes in his diary. All we seem to live for and think of now is food. I've never in my life taken half such a keen interest in food as I do now. 
probably living totally in the open and having to rely on food instead of fire for body heat makes us think so much of food. All of the men are feeling it. Before they were out here, no one would ever eat blubber. Now, they gobble it up at dinner as if it's their last meal. Today, the men are heading out to salvage the rest of the food and supplies from the ship. It's sinking faster, so parts of the boat are no longer accessible. Worsley watches them go, then joins Frank Hurley, the expedition photographer who has his camera set up on his sledge. He's snapping photos of her ghostly shell. The ship is almost on her side now. Snow is creeping up over her banks. The Union Jack flag on the spindly mass is in tatters. If they ever get out, those pictures will tell the story of what the crew faced out here, or at least part of it. What do you think, Hurley? It doesn't look good, does it? Hurley shakes his head. I'd give it another day, tops. When the salvage crew returns a few hours later, they have more supplies. They also bring news. The ice flows have started moving again and are drifting further into the ship. Shackleton joins the group, watching as the ice presses in on all sides as if wrestling the endurance into the sea. Hurley continues to photograph the ship as she sinks lower. At 4.50 p.m., the top of her stack drifts down behind a flow. Shackleton yells to the men in the tents, She's going, boys! Everyone watches in silence as the ship tilts up and hangs in place, as if waving one final goodbye. Then she quietly sinks into the abyss, swallowed up by the sea. A minute later, the ice closes around it, filling the gap, as if she were never there. Frank Hurley turns his camera to take a picture of Shackleton, but stops and then decides to put the camera away. There are certain moments you shouldn't intrude upon. And Ernest Shackleton, watching the death of his ship, is one of them. Henry braces himself against the buffeting wind and struggles to secure his tent to the ice below him. It's November 29th, 2008. They're two weeks into their trek to the South Pole and they're facing their first storm. Shackleton wrote with frustration about Antarctica's ever-changing weather, how ferocious blizzards could be life-threatening. This one seemed to come out of nowhere. Earlier in the day, there had only been a few clouds on the horizon. Now this. He's never felt wind as strong as this. It feels like the tent could be torn out of his hands at any moment. If he loses his grip, it's over. Will and Adams swear under their breath as they wrestle with the poles and the frame. Henry knows they've been lucky. This is the first bad weather they've had in two weeks since they started the trek to the South Pole. They've made good time each day, and everyone is still feeling strong. It's smart to stop and pitch the tent now instead of pushing through and hoping for the best. But the lost time gnaws at Henry. They're already running behind if they want to hit their January 9th goal. If they lose any more days, they'll have to ski faster than Henry's ever skied before to make up for lost time. Each day trapped, they're consuming precious supplies. Now, they're going nowhere. 
Henry climbs inside the tent with Will and Adams. Normally it's peaceful, but now the wind batters the sides and drowns out even the roar of the cooking stove. He can see the snow piling against the tent sides in drifts. Everyone is depressed by the setback. It's Henry's job to rally them. Guys, Shackleton and Scott got trapped on the ice barrier for weeks by a blizzard. They could have died. For us, this is just inconvenient. Maybe the weather will be better in the morning. It's not. Will sits up in his sleeping bag to ask about the storm, and Henry tells him they won't be going anywhere today. I guess we should just get some rest then, build up our strength for tomorrow. I'm going back to sleep. The 24 hours of daylight continue to disorient Henry. The drifting snow beats against the tent just a few inches from his face. It's strangely soothing. He puts on his eye mask and falls back into a fitful sleep. But midday, his body tells him to wake, to do something, anything. Will and Adams are both up, feeling the same. The three men spend a few hours playing cards and chatting. At times, the wind is so fierce they have to wait for a pause to hear one another. It's hard just to sit around and do nothing. The clock is ticking on their expedition. Henry decides to see for himself what conditions are like outside. Maybe it's not as bad as it sounds. But as soon as he steps out of the tent, a wind gust blasts him headfirst. It blows tiny ice crystals into his eyes that grind like sand. Henry rushes back inside to grab his goggles and tries again. Still, he can only see a few hundred yards in any direction. Drifts of snow are piling high against the sleds. The contrast is awful. He can't see where the sky and ice meet on the horizon. It feels like they're the only people in the world cast out into an ocean of white. There's no way forward. Even with a GPS, they'd be lost. The next morning, nothing has changed, except the sleds are almost buried. Henry feels the familiar anxious nerves in his stomach. They're losing time. They'll never make the goal. But what can he do? This is bigger than him or their goal. He starts rummaging through his bag. So far, each night, he's been too tired to read, but now reading is the only thing left to do. Shackleton read Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing on the Nimrod expedition. Henry decides to follow his lead and bury himself in a book. It feels good to escape a different world, give himself a break from the endless calculations, the distance to be covered, how long the supplies might last, when the weather might break. But just like Shackleton, he's going to need to learn to practice and let Antarctica decide when they'll continue. If only this damn wind would ease up. Ernest Shackleton sits alone in his tent, writing in his diary. Every day he notes the weather conditions, the barometric pressure, and the drift of their ice flow. They don't make it out, at least there will be this record for those who follow behind. It's been over a month since they set up camp, and the numbers don't lie. They've been drifting east, away from land. The ice flows like a frozen ship with no rudder, a bottle on the sea being tossed about at the whim of the currents. So far, they've been lucky. It's summer, 
and the men have been able to capture penguins and seals to supplement their food supplies. But in a few short months, the sun will set and it will be dark for months. The wildlife will disappear. They won't survive the winter with the food they have left. He knows if he and his men are going to get out, they'll need to walk. But it's going to be risky to transport the boats and the sledges across the ice flows. The boats weigh almost a thousand pounds, with the sledges more, and not all of the ice flows are as thick as the one they've been camped on. All it takes is one split in the right place, and they'll lose the rest of their rations, or worse, some of the men. But it's their only course. If they stay, they die. Shackleton grabs his hat and steps into a gentle breeze. He has to blink a few times and looks at the tents spread out across the white. It almost looks like an Alaskan mining camp. Each tent is surrounded by stacks of crates with piles of ropes, shovels, and pickaxles. Each tent is surrounded by stacks of crates with piles of ropes, shovels, and pickaxes. The cook's galley tent belches brown smoke. The smell in the air is a mix of smoke, blubber, sweat, and dog. Off to the side, someone has strung up the fur-lined sleeping bags for an airing. There's a comfort here in the routine. Early morning breakfast, walk the dogs, lunch. It's so tempting to stay. It's safety. But Shackleton knows it's just an illusion. He walks through the camp, rattling the tent flaps. Let's gather in the main tent. He's sure the men must have considered the option of leaving, discussed it in their tents at night. But he is the leader. It's his choice to make. He delivers his final order with a grave face. We're leaving. We can't take all of our supplies. So before we go, you can eat as much as you'd like. We're going to celebrate Christmas early. Shackleton watches as smiles are exchanged. A big feed. But more importantly, they're going to do something. No more waiting around. The weeks ahead of them will be brutal, full of hard work. But he knows it's their only option. He has to keep pushing west. There is land out there. And with it, safety. If you're a fan of Against the Odds, check out Audible's new collection of exclusive thrillers that'll keep you on the edge of your seat. Their stories are brought to life with captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, just like how Against the Odds is. I've heard a lot about the title, The Last House on Needle Street, by Catriona Ward. It's a story about a murderer, a stolen child, and revenge, which are all the makings of a good thriller. Excited to give this one a listen. Listen along. As an Audible member, you'll get one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash the odds or text the odds to 500-500. That's audible.com slash the odds or text the odds to 500-500. Henry Worsley focuses on matching his breath to the rhythm of his skis. If he's in the groove, he'll be better mentally prepared to cross the Beardmore Glacier. It's been smooth sailing since the storm two weeks ago, but the Beardmore is going to be the most difficult part of the expedition. The grandeur of the glacier is beyond anything Henry had expected. He'd read about it, he'd seen countless photos, but he wasn't really prepared for its size. A hundred miles in length and tens of miles across, 
This is one of the largest glaciers in the world. It's hard to take in. When Shackleton first laid eyes on what he called the Great Glacier, he considered it an open road to the South Pole. The ice looks so smooth. It almost seems welcoming, but Henry isn't fooled. It might look smooth from a distance, but the Beardmore is a broken ice field. At best, it'll be slow going, but if things go badly, one of them could break a limb or much worse. When they approach the glacier, Henry can see the dark fissures exposed in the snow. The glacier is littered with these jagged marks, the telltale sign of crevasses. Some of them are deep enough to swallow Henry or any of his men whole. And Henry knows some of them will be invisible, covered in a layer of snow that could collapse under their weight. Henry has always known that crossing the glacier will be the most challenging part of the trip. He thinks of it as his nemesis, and he's prepared to conquer it. Weeks of training in France and Greenland had prepared his team for this moment. The three men stop and rope up, linking one another together by a single line of nylon. They're all in this together. If one goes down, the others can help pull him out. At least, that's the idea. As they climb, the smooth, snowy surface of the ice shelf begins to give way to a steep incline with patches of smooth blue ice. When they strike camp for the night, Henry gets out of his harness and sits on his sledge. He checks the GPS and reports the day's progress. Just over 15 nautical miles. Maybe this glacier isn't going to be as scary as she looks. Good work, fellas. We're still on track for January 9th. Henry looks up from his sleigh and turns to his teammates. With all this blue ice, I think we should start out tomorrow with crampons. We'll be able to see the crevasses since there isn't much snow. We can always switch back to skis if needed. What do you think? Adams agrees. But then, almost immediately, Henry steps off his sleigh and his right foot disappears through the snow. It's the weirdest of sensations. One moment, he's standing on a solid surface. The next, he's falling. Before he can reach out to grab something, Henry stops just as quickly, buried up to his hip in a small crevasse. Adams! Adams pulls Henry out easily, but it feels like a sign from the glacier. Don't get cocky. Lesson learned, Henry thinks. The next morning, they set out in high spirits. The sledges glide across the ice. In the brilliant sunshine, everything seems possible. But then, Henry takes another step and almost trips. He looks down and sees that his left crampon has just snapped in half. Shit. Crampons are the lifeblood of every modern Antarctic explorer. He pulls it off his boot and throws it into his pack. Fine, he'll walk without it, but he can't. Every second step, he feels like he's going to slip and fall to the ground. Will and Adams are ahead of him and look back. Everything okay, General? He waves them off. As they trudge forward, he trips again. This isn't good. How's he going to finish off today's leg of the journey, let alone the next two weeks without proper crampons? Henry finally catches up to Will and Adams as they stop for their scheduled snack break. Will nods at Henry. What happened? Henry shows them his broken crampon. 
Will points to his own, which is also about to break. Damn aluminum, eh? Henry shakes his head. He was the one that decided to order aluminum crampons rather than the heavier steel ones to keep their gear as light as possible. Sorry, guys. Will and Adams assure him it's not his fault. It seemed like the smart choice at the time, but Henry's not okay with it. He's the leader and should have known the crampons would break. It was his call, his responsibility. Henry has had to make life and death decisions in the army. He's been in some of the most dangerous places in the world, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, but the Antarctic is like nowhere else in the world. Here, you're fighting the elements, and the biggest danger to a team is you. You have to anticipate the unexpected, but you have to stay in the moment. This isn't as clear-cut as he thought it would be. Chippy McNish is frustrated. This isn't at all what he imagined when he joined the great trans-Antarctic expedition. He's been pulling a one-ton boat across the ice for days on end. It's December 27th, five days since the expedition celebrated an early Christmas, nearly two months since they abandoned the ship. They were supposed to wait for the ice to open at Camp Ocean so they could sail through. A month later, they were still there. Shackleton kept saying it would happen any day. The longer they stayed, the more nothing happened. The truth is, he's getting bored. And he's not the only one. The damn ice flow is so small, he can't even walk more than a mile and a half around because he ends up at the same place. Even the dogs are going mad. And what's worse, it's not even clear they're getting paid. And then, four days ago, Shackleton tells them to pack up. They're heading west, and they could only take two boats and the sledges. But everyone could see the snow was mush. There was no way to get the sledges through that. He complained loudly that it would be harder than the last time they tried. No one listened. Since then, it's been nothing but pulling and heaving through the slush. Every time they manage to make some progress, they're stopped by another ice ridge. Frank Worsley's voice pierces the air. One more time, men. Let's go. Chippy leans against the rope and heaves with all his might. His face breaks out in a sweat. He's 56, older than the rest of the crew. His whole body aches. His boots are filled with icy water. He can hardly feel his feet. They strain and pull for two hours. When they get a break, he looks behind him. They can't have covered more than half a mile. This is ridiculous. He can't think of a time during this godforsaken voyage that the going has been worse. He steps away from the sledge. He's done. When Worsley's voice yells again, he refuses to move. I'm not going any farther. Worsley looks confused. Resume your position at the back, McNish. That's a direct order. Legally, I'm under no obligation to follow your orders. My contract was only valid while we were on board the Endurance. Now the ship's gone. Our agreement is terminated. It feels good to get it out in the open. He should have said this a month ago. Worsley stares at him for a full minute. McNish crosses his arms. Okay, McNish, I'll get the boss to settle this. Then he turns on his heel, making his way to the front of the line. Fine, Chippy thinks, get the boss. He deserves to hear this too. 
Shackleton has been searching ahead to find a route through the ice. It's been a long day. It's been nothing but crusts of ice and wet snow for days. He took the lead to try and warn his men about the precarious spots, but it's not a position he enjoys. He's burst through the snow several times, soaking his feet with icy water. But he doesn't regret his decision. They were drifting east, the wrong direction, at two miles a day. It was time to move. He just wishes the journey were easier. He sees Captain Frank Worsley making his way up the long chain of sledges and dogs. Skipper, how are your men holding up back there? It's been better. It's McNish. Shackleton isn't surprised. McNish has always been argumentative and sullen, but lately he's been complaining openly about having to pull the sleds. He can make certain allowances for hardship, but this will not do. He can't have an insurrection on his hands. He follows Worsley back down the line. The more he thinks about it, the angrier he gets. By the time he reaches the final sledge, he's grinding his teeth. McNish stands off to the side, a stony look on his face. Shackleton pulls him away. The rest of the crew is quiet. He knows they're listening. McNish, get back on the line and pull the bloody boat as your captain ordered. Chippy doesn't move. Our contracts are only valid as long as we're on the ship. Isn't that right? And since the endurance is downed, we're not going to be paid moving forward, right? And if I'm not getting paid, I'm not taking orders. Shackleton is floored. Who does this carpenter think he's talking to? Mr. McNish, this is my third expedition to this continent. Do you think I don't know the law? There's a clause in your contract that says you will perform any duty on board in the boats or on shore, as directed by the master owner. We are on shore, are we not? Chippy nods. Disobedience will be punishable. Until we're all back in Britain, we're on an expedition. And as such, you will get paid every day until you arrive safely home. If you want to go, you're on your own. But I want to remind you that I survived two expeditions here, and every one of my men survived as well. He turns on his heel and marches back up the ridge, leaving McNish to decide what to do on his own. He just hopes he makes the right choice. The next morning, when Shackleton gets to the top of the ridge, he turns back and looks to the sledge. There's McNish, back in position. Shackleton is glad. He may not like McNish, but he's never left a man behind. He doesn't want to start now. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Against the Odds ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. This is the second episode of our four-part series, Endurance, Surviving Antarctica. A quick note about our scenes. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, but everything is based on historical research. If you'd like to learn more about this event, we recommend the books Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing, South by Sir Ernest Shackleton himself, 
and In Shackleton's Footsteps by Henry Worsley. Henry Worsley and his team also created the Shackleton Foundation to support inspirational leaders looking to help disadvantaged young people. For more information, go to www.shackletonfoundation.org. I'm your host, Cassie DePeckle. Anthony Del Call wrote this episode. Our editors are Matt Wise and Maura Waltz. Our consultants are Chris Turney and Tim Fright. Brian White is our associate producer. Our audio engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Sound design is by Joe Richardson with music by Isabel Hirschman. Our executive producers are Stephanie Jens and Marshall Louie. For Wondery. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.